This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. Being seated, uh, find your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday for our guests. We're in a series called That Church, looking at the very first church in the book of Acts and uh, learning from them and from the folks who were in the church and the things that they were going through. So I hope you'll uh, take some notes today and, and uh, fall in love with this word, this, this scripture. Today's passage is one that if you are involved in our small groups, our connection groups, uh, you read this passage of scripture likely last week as we went through the book of Acts and you got to this place and found the story of Stephen, the first martyr. In all of Christianity, uh, he takes threats and he takes, you know, they've taken, the church has taken threats and he, they've taken beatings and the apostles endured all these things. This story ram- ramps it all up to the next level. And even if you didn't know this story was coming up in our journey through Acts, maybe you're unfamiliar with the New Testament and this has been something new for you, you had to, I'm sure, wonder when the first Christian would be killed for following Christ. When was that going to happen? Eventually it had to happen, and here it comes. Here it is. Now, our culture here in the United States, especially right here where we live in the Bible Belt, uh, in a country that for most of our history has been one of religious liberty, uh, but also one that recognized Christianity as the core of our moral fabric and character, Our culture, I'm just going to be real honest with you about some things before we get into the passage. Our culture has made it very, very easy for us to claim to be Christ followers. The challenges are just not great in the United States to follow Christ. Nobody interrogated you at the corner as you put your blinker on to come to worship at Nags Head Church. Nobody's going to harass you when you go outside because you've been here today. If your friends at work know that you're you're a Christian or maybe they know you go to church, they may tease you every now and then as they do me, but they don't don't really probably give you much of a hard time about that. You don't get fired for that very often in this country. We've had it pretty easy. We have great religious liberty here in this land. I say it's easy because only until recently have those of us who profess to be believers sensed any kind of pushback from the society and from our government. We've enjoyed freedom pretty much to preach what we want and when we want, what we choose. We've gotten the freedom for so long, you know, in our churches that that, uh, our churches in this country are tax exempt when you give uh, to a church, you get uh, the government so kind to give us a tax credit for that as we do that. That's something we enjoy here. And we've been largely left alone, even by those who may disagree with us. And as I think about that, and, and how easy it's been for us, and the religious liberties that we have, I'll be honest with you, I cannot help but feel a bit guilty. No, more than a bit guilty, I feel like I don't belong with the Christians around the world in places where today and this week and next their churches are being bombed and and burned down, where on any given Sunday their services can be interrupted by hostile terrorists, where in places like Egypt and Syria 
the prevailing religion of Islam motivates others to push the Christians out of the country, and if they can't push them out of the country, to kill them while they're trying. And I read the news, and I see what's happening in those places, and I cannot stop but think, we have it so good here, and we don't even know it. Maybe too good. I saw this quote the other day, and and I totally agree with it. Russell Moore, who's president of the Southern Baptist Convention Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, said, quote, the Bible Belt is collapsing. The world of nominal cultural Christianity that took the American dream and added Jesus to it in order to say, you can have everything you ever wanted, and heaven too, is soon to be gone. Good riddance. I say to him, amen. Because I don't believe that we in the Bible Belt who have enjoyed the easy Christianity that our country has afforded us really understand what it means to pay the price to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. But I believe that's changing right now in that same denomination, Southern Baptist chaplains who make up the second largest group of chaplains in our American military behind The Roman Catholics, Southern Baptist chaplains, are at a junction right now where they must choose that they're either going to bow to the government's mandate for them to perform same-sex weddings or they're going to resign their commissions from the service. And religious liberty, as we've enjoyed it for over two two and a quarter centuries, almost two and a half, is falling like a line of dominoes. And we'll all have to make tough choices, I believe, in the, very, in the next decade. We're all going to have to make very, very difficult choices. Will I be resolved to stand with and for Christ? Or will I realize I'm not willing to sacrifice myself? I'm not willing to give up my passions. I'm not willing to give away my possessions for him. That time is coming, and if you and I need to make a choice, we had better make that choice, knowing that those days are coming. We better be prepared to make that choice now, ahead of the crunch. Otherwise, when the time does come and we're forced to make a decision, I wonder how many of us will bail on Jesus and be ashamed when we do stand before him. Stephen is an example of one of those in the first century, and there were many more after him, and many more in the 2,000 years since. One who was not ashamed and willing to give it all up for Christ. We call him the first martyr. The word martyr comes from a Greek word that simply means witness. That's what the word martyr means. And we're going to see Stephen witness in a very powerful way in this passage. I cannot read all of it for time this morning, all of chapter 7 and the remainder of chapter 6. But I want you to look with me at verses 8 through 15 in chapter 6 as we start. Stephen. We met Stephen last Sunday. If you were here, he was one of the seven men chosen by the Jerusalem congregation, men with Greek names to take care of the widows in the church and meet their daily needs of food and groceries, so forth. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen is the first Christian that we've heard about in the book of Acts, other than the apostles to have the ability to do some signs and wonders, to do a miracle or two or three or however many. First one. He's doing that among the people, and then verse 9, then some came 
from what is called the Freedmen's Synagogue. This is a multicultural synagogue in Jerusalem. You'll see composed of both Cyrenians, Africans, and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia, which is in Asia Minor, Turkey, and Asia. All these people are in the, together in the same synagogue. They came forward to Stephen as he's out in the community preaching and teaching and doing miracles. They came forward and disputed with Stephen. They challenged him on what he was preaching. Verse 10 is great, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. They could not refute what was happening, what he was saying. And because they couldn't, verse 11, then they persuaded some men to say, got some guys to lie, to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words about Moses and God. It tells you where they had elevated the status of Moses to, by the way. He's up there with God that you could blaspheme against Moses. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and so they came and dragged him off. You remember when the, when the apostles were taken prisoner uh, by these same people back in chapter 5, I think it was, they were very careful not to drag them off because they feared the people would erupt in a riot. Here they just dragged Stephen off and took him to the Sanhedrin. We've met them on several occasions already in Acts. They are the Jewish Supreme Court, the Jewish Senate, if you will, the 70 men who led Judaism. They also pre presented false witnesses who said, this man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place. The temple was where they were gathered. He's blaspheming against the temple and against the law. For we heard him say, here's a lie. We heard him say that, about, that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place. Now, Jesus did not say he was going to destroy the temple. Jesus simply said, the temple would be destroyed, but if you destroy this temple, talking about his own body, I'll raise it up again in three days. But they turned Jesus' words around. Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Jesus said, I've not come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill it. So here's some lies here. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him, at Stephen, and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I don't know what that means. I've never seen an angel that I know of. Well, I shouldn't say that. I kiss an angel good morning every day. I know that. But, I, but you know, you want, it's not some um, precious memories little character, you know, that so sappy. Look, it's all the face of an angel. Sometimes angels are wielding swords of fire. He saw his face looked, his face looked different. They didn't know how to describe it. Jot this down if you're taking notes this morning. Point number one is that every partner with Christ is a witness. Here's Stephen, one of the great, one of the, one of the seven Greek speaking men that the apostles just appointed to take on the ministry of serving the widows in the church. Please get this now. L listen, he's not a pastor, he's not a prophet, he's not an apostle, but he's a man. A Christian man who knows what he believes and is willing to share it with those who don't believe. There, was no, there were no degrees after his name. He's not been to seminary. He's what they call in some church bodies. We don't use this terminology, but maybe to help you understand, he's a layman. 
right? He's just a normal, everyday guy, and he's able to do this. He knows what he believes, and he's willing to share it with those who don't believe. Why do we witness, by the way? We witness because we care. We witness because we care. Someone at some time, if you're a Christian here today, someone at some time shared the gospel with each one of us so that we could know Christ and we could be possessors of forgiveness of our sin and we could have the hope of everlasting life. And then we've been commissioned by Christ to go into all the world and share that same gospel with those around us. We witness because we care. Well, the converse is true as well. If I don't witness, it means... I don't care. Stephen cared, and so he shared. In Kittyhawk Village, where I live, back on Kittyhawk Road, there's an old white church building that sits on the corner of Twyford and Kittyhawk Roads. Maybe if you've been back there, if you've ever gone to see Tom and Sandra, they just live right there in that neighborhood. But there's this white church, old white church building there. Can't mistake, it's been there for years and years and years. Providence Primitive Baptist Church was the name of the congregation that met there. They were founded in 1854 by a group from Elam Primitive Baptist Church across the Sound in Powell's Point. Neither of those two congregations exist. They're both gone. In fact, I was told by one of my neighbors who lives down the street from me, and he's kind of a local, local Kitty Hawk historian. He was sharing with me several years ago when it happened that the last surviving member of, of the Primitive Baptist Church in Kitty Hawk had died probably about five years ago. Who knows the last time there were regular services in that church? Tom, you've lived there forever. You ever remember regular service? No. I've, driven, I've never seen anybody there. Who knows the last time that anybody ever trusted Christ because of the witness of that church? Who knows the last time anybody was ever baptized by Providence Primitive Baptist Church? And the reason is it died a long time ago. Let me explain to you why it died. The Primitive Baptists do not believe in any form of missions or evangelism. They have a type of theology that is hyper-Calvinistic. They have a belief that those who are going to be saved will get saved, and they don't need our help to get there. They don't need anyone to share the gospel with them. If God's going to save them, they're going to be saved, and we can just forget about it. And so when that church was formed in the mid-1800s, a number of Kittyhawk families joined it, And for a number of generations, their children grew up in that. That was the family's church. Their children remained members, but no one ever shared the gospel with their neighbors. No evangelism, no missions. No one ever led their friends to Christ. And the inevitable happened. Someone has wisely said, truly said, that the church is just one generation away from extinction. And they began, as the young people grew up, they began moving away, and the old people began dying off until just about five years ago, the last elder member of that congregation slipped off into eternity. And now that building is a practice facility for a Christian puppet ministry. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the Son of God, came to live a perfect life, that he died as a substitute on the cross for our sins, was raised from the dead, is not to be kept as our precious little secret. It's to be told and it's to be given away to anyone and everyone. And that's why at Nags Head Church, that's why we support missionaries around the world. It's why we encourage every partner in this church to be a witness. It's why we do outreach events here in our community is to pull people in to share the gospel with them. You don't have to be a pastor or a seminary grad, Stephen shows us, to explain how to believe in Christ. I guess Stephen was having a conversation with some Jews in town. Maybe he was preaching on a street corner when this group of Jews from this freedman's synagogue challenged him about his belief that Jesus is the Messiah. And he answered their arguments with proofs, evidences they could not refute. The point number two in our notes is this. In that church, every partner should be able to explain why he or she believes every partner. Not just what I believe, but why I believe. Stephen, after he was brought before the Sanhedrin, he was then launched because they charged him with several blasphemies against Moses and God and the temple and so forth. He launched into a defense of the charges against him with a recounting of Israel's history. And these Jewish leaders that he's talking to, these 70 plus people gathered there, knew their history backwards and forwards. They knew the Old Testament. And so Stephen uses what they know. He uses their history, his history as a Jew, to present Christ to them. He uses their theology to show them the Messiah. They said he blasphemed against the temple. So he goes back to Abraham and says, hey, you know, Abraham, our father, there was no temple. Abraham had no home. He wandered about through this land that God told him to go to, and everywhere he went, temple or not, and there was no temple, Abraham found time and a place to worship. So it's not about the temple. He showed them that. He explained that to them. Made that clear. He showed how Joseph and then Moses were rejected by their own people only to be chosen by God to save their people. And just like these very Jewish leaders didn't understand, just like them back then, these very Jewish leaders didn't understand who Jesus was. Stephen was saying Jesus was like Moses. He got rejected. Jesus was like Joseph. His brothers rejected him. But they both saved their people from ultimate death and slavery. Then he turned to the time of Joshua and David and when God was worshipped in a tent called the tabernacle. And Then God allowed Solomon, David's son, to build the permanent structure, the temple. And so Stephen, when he tells that story, he quotes from Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. You see that in, cha in chapter 7, verses 49 and 50. He says about God, he says, verse 48, however the most high does not dwell in sanctuaries, temples made with hands. As the prophet says, here's what Isaiah said, heaven is my throne, he quotes God. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me? God's saying, how can you put me in a house? Or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? And he explains to them, he shares with them 
that you cannot hold God in a building. To think you can do so is silly. Now, how does Stephen, this ordinary guy who likely didn't grow up in Jerusalem and wasn't formally trained as a theologian or a rabbi, a priest, how, did, how was he able to deliver such a masterful defense of Jesus as their Messiah? Where did he get all this knowledge? Let me suggest several things. First of all, he was a Jew, so likely he grew up hearing the Bible taught. When he grew up in a family, a Jewish family, and every Sabbath, every Saturday, they went to synagogue. He heard the scriptures read by the rabbi. He heard the scriptures taught. And, and, and that's why, frankly, why every Sunday we teach the word of God here, and we teach it to our children from age three up through fifth graders on Sunday morning, Sunday night. Our middle school and high school kids will gather in the loft tonight, and they'll hear the word of God. We want you to grow up and know the scriptures. Stephen did. He grew up hearing these stories. I think a second reason that Stephen was able to do this is that he took his faith seriously. Even before ever hearing about Christ. And then he made the obvious connections between the old covenant of the law and the new covenant of Christ. And when he heard, he knew what the old covenant said, and he heard about Jesus and what he came to do, and it was in his heart and in his mind, Stephen was able to connect the dots and realize Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. You see, being a Christian, jot this down in your notes somewhere, find a place for it. Being a Christian wasn't just something Stephen added to his life. Well, I got my family, I got my job, I got whatever it is, my career, whatever it is, go, my hobbies, my fun things to do, I'll add Jesus as another, another, you know, another iron in the fire. He didn't just add Christianity to his life, Christianity was his life. He took his faith very, very seriously, Stephen did. A third thing about Stephen that I know is that he learned how, apparently, he learned how to think theologically. Now, that word scares a lot of people, and it shouldn't. Theology is the, the knowledge of God, the science, if you will, of God. God wasn't just something that someone that Stephen gave credence to every Sunday or every Sabbath day in his regard. It wasn't just something, yeah, I'll go to the synagogue, go to the service, sit there, stand up, sit down, repeat this, repeat that, and, and be, do my God thing for the week. He learned how to think theologically. God and God, the knowledge of God permeated every part of his being and permeated his thinking. And once Christ became his savior and the Holy Spirit moved into his heart, it all came together for him. And he learned how to think based upon what he knew about God. Everything was built about what he knew about God. Well, I got, we got a got to change jobs. What does God say about that? What kind of job should I look for? What am I willing to accept? What am I not? We, got, you know, we, we have all these decisions in life, and sometimes if we haven't learned how to think theologically, we never bring God into the discussion. Not Stephen. He learned how to think theologically because how we think determines our choices and our actions in life. Did you know that? How you think before you ever have to make the choice how you think determines that. Think theologically. The fourth thing that I can see about him is that I believe Stephen was part of the devoted. 
who sat under the apostles' teaching. That goes back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, right after Pentecost, 3,000 are saved. They're baptized. The church pulls together, and it says, and they, they were devoted continually to the apostles' teaching. Devoted. What are you devoted to in your life? I'm devoted to my kids. I'm devoted to my spouse. Maybe you're devoted to your job, especially if you own your business or you're a manager of some kind. I'm devoted to this, and I'm devoted to that. I'm devoted to surfing, whatever it is that you're devoted to. You know what devotion is? Stephen was part of the devoted who sat under the apostles' teaching. And I believe that's probably one reason why he was chosen by the people to serve the widows. They saw the consistency of his life and what it produced. Then, most importantly, he was full of the Holy Spirit. And here is the essence, church, of following Christ. It's not about so much about my effort. It's about God's effort in me, full of the Holy Spirit. The essence of following Christ, the the essence of living an unexplainable life. And what does it mean? What do you mean by full of the Holy Spirit? Very simply, I empty myself of me. I pull the plug and let all of me drain out. Put the plug back in, and Lord, please now fill me with your thoughts, with your mind, with your desires, with your will. Take control of my mind, of my will, of my emotions, of my choices, of my actions. Be in charge. I surrender myself completely to you. Philip was, or Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, There is not a partner in this church who cannot be a Stephen. Every single one of us can be like this man. There's not anybody here that could, ah, I could never be like, yes, you can. But it's about the Lord in your life. There's no excuse for any of us not to be students of the word and being able to defend what we believe. Unless you're a brand new baby Christian, if you want to get serious about knowing what you believe, let me, let me recommend a couple of books that you ought to try to get along with your Bible and, and have these two as tools along with your, your, your word, the word of God. I think these ought to be in every Christian partner in Nagsett Church. I think these ought to be in your library. One is the, the Believer's Bible Commentary by William MacDonald. It's a one-volume commentary of the whole Bible. He discusses the entire Bible in one book. It's a book about that thick. Well, what a great, great tool. I, probably every week I open that up and, and, and examine the, the passage of Scripture in the, script, in the Bible and then go to the commentaries. What is William MacDonald? How does he explain this? It's a great, great tool. A second tool is, is the, the book called Basic Theology by Charles Ryrie. Some of you may have in your lap right now a Ryrie Study Bible. You've heard that name. Great theologian from Dallas who's gone on to be with the Lord But he put together this theology and explains all the doctrines that we believe in ways that we can understand it. It's not real technical. It's not written for, you know, egghead Christians. It's written for just the normal everyday guy like you and me. In fact, our elders all have copies of this, and it's what we use to test them before ordaining them as pastors. Both of them are written in understandable, non-technical language, and you can find them, I'm guessing, at Amazon and in different places. Let me encourage you to grab those books. Another point here that I learned from Stephen's story. 
God gives courage beyond ourselves. He was a courageous man. And after presenting his biblical defense against their charges, he spoke very, very boldly. And he held these men, the Sanhedrin, he held them accountable for their own sin of rebellion against God. Verse 51, he gets done with his, with, with his defense and he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Stiff-necked means you stubborn people. Uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're still living in your sin. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. So do you. Which of your prophets, which of your which of your of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have received the law under the direction of angels and have not kept it. To a people very proud for keeping the law, he said, you have not. A lot of courage steps up to the bat here. And you have to remember that this audience, the Sanhedrin, they were the religious leaders of Israel. These weren't people to be trifled with. They were men who, it wasn't as though they had never heard of God. They had, it wasn't as though they had never been to church. They'd been to synagogue their whole lives. They've been rabbis, they're teachers, they're experts in the law and the Bible. They're the leaders of the Jewish faith that supposedly have been looking for the Messiah since Abraham 2,000 years ago, but he says, you've missed it all by your rebellion, by your stubbornness, by the blindness of your eyes and your hearts. And that's why he spoke to them the way he did. They got what he was saying, but they didn't accept it. You see, witnessing is not for sissies. You have to come out of your shell. You have to take a step of faith. You have to be bold to share the gospel with your friends. The number one reason Christians don't share their faith is fear. Fear of being rejected. Fear of not knowing what to say. Fear of not having the right answer to the right question. It's not for sissies. You'll have to be able to explain to people you witness to, but here, the Bible says everyone is a sinner. That there's nothing we can do to get ourselves in a right relationship with God. That we're all lost without Christ because we care. And you've got to be willing to be ready, prepared for rejection by some. And rejection, the possibility of rejection takes courage. Because nobody wants to be rejected. But that courage is God-given. So if you balk at being a witness Christian because you're afraid, then you are not giving God a chance to do something in you by filling you and giving you boldness beyond yourself. When I was a youth pastor in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> when I was a youth pastor, I used to challenge my young people every September, August, right before school started, I would always, always had a message that I would bring to them, and the, and the essence of this is, message was, you're getting ready to go to school. Here's what I want to, to dare you to do. I want you to take your Bible to school with you and carry it on top of your books to every class. Don't stick it in your locker and leave it there. Take it to, you don't, don't open, you don't have to open it and read it. 
you know, while the teacher's teaching geometry, don't be reading the Gospels, you know, you got to do what you're supposed to be there to do, but take it there. Because it will open doors. People will question, why have you got your Bible there? And the reason I know that is because I was dared to do the same thing when I was a teenager. Back in the late 60s, I, no, I'm not going to do that. I'd heard, you know, 8th, ninth, 10th grade. I even, there was even a girl who was a year older than me, and I knew she was carrying her Bible to school. A girl was braver than me. I wouldn't do it. But then my sophomore year of high school, God got a hold of my life in a great way. Got me serious about what I believed. And I said, Lord, I'm going to start carrying my Bible to school. Now, I kind of cheated because I, I had this little blue plastic-covered New Testament about that big. And I stuck it in my, right, in my right front pocket of my jeans. Kind of my wallet's in there now, but it kind of looked like about that same size. And I would carry it there. That's where I carry I can, I mean, I'm taking my Bible to school, Jesus. You can see it. But I remember one time I got stopped in between classes by a teacher. He looked and apparently saw that, you know, back in those days, smoking ain't allowed in school, we sang. And so... You know, he looked down there, and he thought, he's got a pack of cigarettes in his pocket. And he said, stop me. He said, what's in your pocket? And I grinned at him. And I pulled out my New Testament and held it up. I said, it's a Bible, man. But God convicted me about that, and I began to, I had this, I had a black Bible, and I began to carry my black, I mean, the whole Bible, on top of my books. And, and after a while, fellow students, man, why do you have that Bible? Do you believe that? Yeah, I do. And, and they would start asking me questions, and maybe it was in class. And I said, look, meet with me at lunch. So at lunchtime, we would sit down, and I'd witness to them about Christ, tell them about Jesus Christ. And I would challenge our teenagers to do the same thing. Take your Bible to school and, and, and give God an opportunity by just by carrying it to open those doors. He'll give you the courage to explain your faith when you're asked. But please understand, the next point, following Christ may take you to the extreme. Verses 54 down through the end of the chapter. You, let's see. When they heard these things, the Sanhedrin heard, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised, hearted people. When they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Let me stop right there. And just for you theological people, please, let me give you a little tidbit. The Bible says when Jesus ascended to heaven, he went to the right hand of God. And Hebrews chapter 1 says he sat down, indicating his work was complete. Stephen sees him standing. What makes Jesus stand. I believe it's when he's about to receive another saint into glory. And he knew what was coming with Stephen. And he stood up. He's going to stand up one day and say it's time. And he's going to come and gather all of us who believe, scoop us on up. He's going to stand then. But Stephen says, I, I see him standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, and they screamed, verse 57, the Sanhedrin, they screamed at the top of their voices, and all these grown men what this, covered their ears. 
because of this blasphemy that Stephen was speaking, they threw him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses, here, Luke interjects this one, he introduces us to a new character in the book of Acts. And the witnesses laid their robes as they took their robes off to hurl the stones at the feet of a young man named Saul, indicating Saul was in charge of this execution. Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. They were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Reminiscent of Jesus' words on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And saying this, he fell asleep. Here's what Jesus said about following him. In the Gospel of Luke, he said to them, to his disciples, if anyone wants to come to me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, which is an instrument of execution, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, Stephen, because of me, will save it. What does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and of the holy angels. What do we do with those words? Deny himself, take up cross, lose my life. What do we do with those words? Either Jesus was serious when he said that or he wasn't. Either he said that and he meant it or he said that and he looked at his disciples and gave them a big wink. Just kidding, boys. I don't think he was kidding, do you? Not about stuff like that. Stephen knew this message that he preached, that he shared with the Sanhedrin. He knew it would stir up anger in the hearts of, them, of these men. They had already demonstrated their hatred toward the apostles, but Stephen was willing to risk everything so that the gospel might be spoken and Christ might be glorified in his life and in his death. This was a man, Stephen, an ordinary man who was ready and willing to give it all up for Jesus. You know, if I had been there, maybe in the background behind Stephen, I might have been tempted as Stephen began to say the things he was saying and bring it to the I might have been tempted to say, Stephen, stop. Man, don't you know who you're talking to? Don't you know what they're going to do to you? Cut it. Come on, man, let it go. I might have been tempted to stop him, and I think if I had... He probably would have turned and looked at me and just wondered with that look, do you follow Christ or not? I'm just following Jesus here. Am I following Christ if I spend no time with him in prayer? Am I following Christ if I spend no time listening to him speak through his word? Am I following Christ if I gather with other believers, other followers for worship? When it's convenient, fits in my schedule. Am I following Christ if I serve his family begrudgingly? What about if I don't serve them at all? If I, am I following Christ if I never tell a lost person the gospel that can save them? And just like Stephen, Christian, we're all given a command from Christ to witness. And all of us do witness. Please understand, whether you live for him or you don't, as a Christian, you are witnessing with your words and deeds. And your words and deeds, your life is either pointing others to salvation in Christ or it's driving them away. 
but we all witness. If I'm not willing to follow him all the way, am I really following him at all? And I wonder this morning with this group that's here, do we have any Stevens here? Are we willing to take Jesus' words seriously or can we truly be willing to be content with following him unless there's a risk involved, unless it requires a sacrifice, unless I'm demanded total abandonment? I don't know if I want that. Right now, I'd like for you to bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. And I hope your hearts will be open to the Spirit of God. In a moment, our band is going to play, and they're going to sing a song. And while they're playing and while they're singing, I just want you to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I don't want you to sing along. I want you to listen, and I want you to think about what you've heard. And I want, hopefully, the Spirit of God to work in your hearts. And if you're willing to be a Stephen... And to be unashamed. I'm not saying you are that way, but you're willing to be. You'll want to be this kind of Christian, unashamed, totally abandoned to Christ in your life while they're playing and while they're singing, whether it's one or whether it's all, I want you to stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed and remain standing. And then after the song, if anyone is standing, I want to speak with you briefly. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.